The scripture reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. When you're a pastor of a church where the majority of the people are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, you do a lot more weddings than you do funerals, uh, and you see a lot more life than you see death, um, especially with all the babies being born. And incidentally, my wife is due any minute now, so I am crossing my fingers that she does not uh, go into labor as I'm speaking, uh, so if you can keep us in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, but this past Tuesday, uh, I went to a funeral, uh, which is not something that I do often, but uh, I went to a funeral for one of my relatives. And when you are face-to-face -face and staring at a dead corpse that is completely lifeless, that you once saw full of life and animation just a few months ago, uh, it does something to you. You know, death is like a smelling salt that that awakens you from sleepwalking through life. It sobers you up faster than anything else. And when you attend a funeral, it's almost impossible not to think about your own funeral one day. And if you obsess over death, obviously it's a little bit morbid, but if you never think about death, which is the majority of us, uh, it's a bit naive. Because death is something that all of us are individually going to experience at one time or another. Death, as one philosopher said, is the great equalizer that doesn't discriminate based upon race, gender, or class. And so not to think about it is foolish, but if we do think about it, it can potentially make us wise, which is why the psalmist in Psalm chapter 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to number our days? It means understanding that the days are long, but the years are short. And so we ought to steward our lives in the wisest way possible. And this is what all the great thinkers throughout history have wrestled with. What is the meaning of life? How am I supposed to live my life purposefully? What's the point of it all? Um, I think it was Albert Camus who uh, gave this illustration. He said, uh, imagine someone comes up to you and they say to you, what do you love to do? And so you say, I'm a foodie, so I love fine dining. Or I'm a thrill seeker, so I like doing dangerous things. Or I love movies and entertainment, so I like watching stuff like the latest Avengers movie. And so the person says to you, all right, all right I'm gonna cut you a deal. 
I will personally pay out of my own pocket whatever you want to do for the next four hours, but on one condition. After those four hours are over, your life must come to an end. Now, would you take that deal? There is no way any of us would take that deal. Why? How are we supposed to enjoy the next four hours of our lives, even if it is going to per se or 11 or skydiving? How in the world are we supposed to enjoy the next four hours of our lives if we know that death is right around the corner? And Camus would say, but don't you see, that's the point. You might not die in the next four hours, and you might stretch it out to the next 40 years of your life, but still, death is just around the corner. So how can we possibly enjoy life knowing that our inevitable death awaits us? And so for Camus, he thought that this life was just completely absurd. It was a fraud. It was, it was stupid. And so for most of us who are not philosophers with a capital P, how do we cope with this existential angst that we feel knowing that we could potentially die? We distract ourselves. Technology, entertainment, or as Neil Postman would say, we amuse ourselves to death so that we don't have to think about it, which is another way of saying we do absolutely nothing. The most human response in the face of disaster is to do nothing. That's at least according to a BBC article that I want to read for you on the first page of your bulletin from Zaria Gorvet in an article entitled, What Not to Do in a Disaster. And this is what Gorvet says, surprisingly, plenty of people in deadly scenarios don't act fast enough to save their own lives. From arguing over small change while a ship sinks into stormy water, to standing idly on the beach as a tsunami approaches, psychologists have known for years that people make self-destructive decisions under pressure. Footage of the Japanese earthquake in 2011 showed people risking their lives while rushing to save bottles of alcohol from smashing in a supermarket. And when a plane caught fire at an airport in Denver, evacuating passengers lingered by the plane to watch the flames and take selfies. When we think of disaster, we tend to think of mass hysteria. In the movies, people run away with their arms flailing. But the reality is, the most natural human response in the face of danger is to simply do nothing. And a part of the reason why we do nothing, especially when it comes to death, is honestly because we don't feel like we have the resources to face pain, suffering, and death. This passage, however, is saying that we do. That we do have the resources to face pain, suffering, and even death. This is a story about a centurion and a servant. And another way of translating the word servant is a young man. And so chances are this young man looked up to the centurion as some kind of mentor. And chances are that the servant was some kind of armor bearer. An armor bearer was someone that carried the armor and the weapons of a soldier, just like a golf caddy carries the golf clubs of a golfer. King David, for example, was an armor bearer for King Saul. And so chances are the servant was some kind of armor bearer of a sort. And what we also know about the servant is that at one time in his life, he was perfectly healthy, 
But somehow, someway, he gets into some type of accident, whether that's falling off a ladder or falling off a horse, and it leaves him in a state of paralysis, a state that is so bad he's in excruciating pain and actually on the brink of death. Now, if we're going to get the most out of the story, one of the things that we have to emotionally do is to place ourselves now in the shoes of the centurion. So I don't know if you want to think about someone in your own life that is really sick, someone in your own life that is on the brink of death, or someone has, that has died before, but if we're going to suck the juices out of the story, we have to place ourselves in the shoes of the centurion because the main character in this story is actually not the servant, but it's actually the centurion. The person that's really saved and the person that's really healed is not the servant, but it's actually the centurion, which is why we don't know anything about the servant. We don't know the servant's name, how the servant got into uh, the state of paralysis. We barely know anything about the servant other than the fact that he's healed in the very last verse. And so what that's pointing to is that this story, more than anything else, is really about the centurion. Now, what is a centurion? A centurion was a soldier, some kind of military commander, who commanded a platoon of troops called a sentry which is 100 soldiers. And so that's why they were called centurions. And centurions were not the type that were in their ivory tower giving orders to the soldiers on the field, but centurions were actually on the battlefield. And so centurions were known for being uh, men of valor, men of courage. Um, centurions had a high rate of attrition because they would often get injured or, or die. And so when centurions did make it alive after battle. They were well-respected, they were well-paid, they were um, very influential in society. And one of the things that's so interesting about centurions, if you do a study of centurions in the Bible, there are seven different centurions that are mentioned in Scripture. And all seven of them are spoken in a very favorable light. And so here we have a centurion and a servant, but this time the centurion is not fighting for his platoon's life, so much as he is fighting for his servant's life. And so if you read with me verses 2 to 3, it says, There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. One of the things that's so fascinating about these two verses is that the centurion had heard about Jesus before, but the centurion never reaches out to Jesus until there's a problem in his life. And oftentimes that is the case with us as well. We don't really get religious until there's trouble in our life. And one of the reasons why a lot of people turn to religion when there's trouble in their life is because religion offers resources to handle pain, suffering, and death that other disciplines simply do not. And so here the centurion is looking for help uh, to Jesus, and he uh, reaches out to him. And certainly we've seen examples of this perhaps in our own life when we've had trouble and we turn to God, and we see examples of this throughout history as well. When people face some kind of dilemma or trial, they begin to get religious. And this was the case for a Russian novelist named Leo Tolstoy, who many of you have heard of. You know what the trial Tolstoy was facing was? The trial, the dilemma that Tolstoy was facing was that he was simply getting old. And at the age of 50, Tolstoy has this mid to late life crisis 
about the meaning and purpose of life. And I want to read you a quote again on the first page of your bulletin from Tolstoy's Confession. And Tolstoy says, the question brought me to the edge of the abyss when I was 50 years old. What will come of what I do today and tomorrow? Is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by inev my inevitable, inevitably approaching death? Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs will be forgotten and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can man fail to see this? And how go on living? That is what is so surprising. One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud, a stupid fraud. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. For the centurion, the reason why he gets religious, just like Tolstoy, is because there's a trial in his life. And so whether that's getting old or someone in your life that's very sick. And so as a result of that, the centurion reaches out to Jesus because of his friend's imminent death. And so the centurion sends two groups of messengers to Jesus. One group to bring him, and then the other group to actually stop him. And so if you read with me verses 4 through 7, it says, When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. So the centurion sends one group of messengers to say, come. And then he sends another group of messengers to say, don't come. One group of messengers say, he deserves to have you heal his servant. The second group of messengers say, we don't deserve you to have you, you know, we don't deserve you to come to uh, the, I'm messing this up terribly. We don't deserve to have you come under our roof. One group says they deserve it. Another group says they don't deserve it. So what's with the contradiction? And one of the things that we see here in this seeming contradiction is a glimpse of what religion is like and what Christianity is like. Religion is merit-based. It's based upon what you deserve. Good people deserve good things to happen to them. Bad people deserve bad things to happen to them. Karma, it's what you deserve. However, Christianity is not merit-based. It's not work-based. It's actually grace-based. So we don't get what we deserve, we actually get a whole lot more. So what does that mean to be grace-based? For, for those of you who might not remember Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was a pedophile and a mass murderer in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, Dahmer uh, was accused of dismembering 17 men and boys. And finally, in 1991, Dahmer was caught by the police and imprisoned for life. Three years into Dahmer's sentence in 1994, one of his fellow prison inmates got a metal rod 
and beat Dahmer to death because, ironically, he was horrified by what Dahmer did outside of prison. But what most people don't know about the story of Jeffrey Dahmer is that between 1991 and 1994, there was a prison chaplain named Roy Ratcliffe that would meet with Dahmer for one hour a week. And during Ratcliffe's time with Jeffrey Dahmer, Dahmer eventually became contrite and and sorrowful for the actions that he had committed. And he asked God for forgiveness, he repented, he entered into a relationship with God. And so subsequently, Chaplain Ratcliffe actually baptized Jeffrey Dahmer in prison before he was beaten to death. Now, could it be possible, could it be possible that Jeffrey Dahmer, who at one point was considered the most evil American alive, Could it be possible that Jeffrey Dahmer is now in heaven with eternal life while a sweet old lady with 10 grandchildren who never trusts in Jesus is not in heaven with eternal life but facing eternal judgment? If your answer to that is, no, that's not fair. I would never want to live in a world like that. I would never want to believe in a God like that then you still don't understand grace. You're still operating according to a merit-based system about what people deserve. But Christianity is not merit-based, but it is grace-based. We are saved by the merits of another person, the works of Jesus Christ. And we don't get what we deserve, which is judgment and condemnation, because somebody else took the judgment and condemnation that we deserved. And so as a result of that, we get so much more. I love the response that C.J. Mahaney gives sometimes when he's asked the question, how are you doing? And occasionally he responds by saying, better than I deserve. When you can say that I am doing better than I deserve, then you are in the beginning stages of understanding what grace is. And when you understand just how scandalous grace is, it begins to humble you to your core. And the centurion was now beginning to understand what grace was, which is why he says, I don't deserve to even have you come under my roof. You know, centurions in uh, the ancient world were up here, carpenters were down here. Yet it's the centurion that is reaching out to the carpenter with humility. In uh, David Brooks's uh, book, The Road to Character, one of my favorite lines in that book that Brooks says is that Alice had to become small to enter into Wonderland. And similarly, for us to enter into a relationship with God, we must become small as well. So what does it look like to be small and to be humble? Well, I want to tell you a story about someone that was big in their own eyes, but had to learn how to become small in order to be healed. And that man is Dr. Strange. Hannah and I just saw the Avengers movie this past Friday, and I'm not going to spoil for you, but Doctor Strange is one of the main players in the movie. And if you watch the movie Doctor Strange, you know that Stephen Strange is a very successful yet egotistical surgeon. And one day as Doctor Strange is driving back home in the rain, he gets into a severe car accident, and his body is now just ravaged. And the most important part of a surgeon's body is ravished, and that was his hands. Now, Stephen Strange, his his entire life has built his identity upon being a doctor. 
his entire life. And now, just like that, that identity is shaken and the foundation is ripped away from under him. Now he doesn't know who he is anymore. And so as a result of that, he is trying to desperately, just like the centurion, try to find a way to heal his broken hands. And so he travels all over the country. He travels all over the world to find some kind of medicinal miracle to fix his broken hands. And his journey then leads him to the mountains of Nepal, where he hears that there is someone called the Ancient One who could potentially heal him. But as a scientist, Dr. Strange is very skeptical about what the Ancient One can do for him. And I want to read you the final quote on the first page of your bulletin um, about this conversation between the Ancient One and Dr. Strange. The Ancient One says, You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole. You spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole to see and know more. And now on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't even imagine, you reject the possibility. Dr. Strange says, no, I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. We're just another tiny momentary speck in an indifferent universe. The Ancient One says, you think too little of yourself. Your intellect has taken you far in life, but it will take you no further. Surrender, Stephen. Silence your ego. What does it look like to silence our ego and to surrender? Well, one of the richest examples I know of surrendering comes from trapeze artists. Now, when there are trapeze artists, they're, they're 50 feet in the air. One person is holding onto a bar, swinging back and forth, and there's another person holding on the bar, um, sometimes uh, on, holding the bar with their knees, the back of their knees, and they're swinging back and forth like this. And eventually, one of the trapeze artists has to let go of the bar, suspend themselves in midair, hoping and trusting that the other trapeze artists will catch them by the arms. What does it look like to surrender yourself? It looks like letting go of the bar and putting the full weight of who you are and your life into the hands of another person. That's what it looks like to surrender. Now, surrendering is not an easy thing, particularly if you're a control freak, and if you live in New York City, chances are the majority of you are. But surrendering is one of the hardest things to do, but the antidote to, to, to being a control freak is actually surrendering. The antidote to a spirit of worry and anxiety about tomorrow is actually surrendering so long as you surrender to someone more powerful than you, so long as you surrender to someone that is in more control of the situation than you. And here we see the centurion surrendering to someone that is more powerful than him. And that is what faith is. It is transferring trust away from yourself to another person. That's what faith is. And because the centurion does this, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. Did you know that there are only two times in all the scripture where Jesus actually marvels? One is in Mark chapter 6, where he marvels at the unbelief of his own friends and family 
because they don't believe who he is. The second time that Jesus marvels is right here in Luke chapter 7, where he marvels at the faith of the centurion. And I love that Luke writes that the centurion marvels and is astonished because when I hear that word, what I see is humanity. Jesus here shows his divinity and deity in the sense that he heals the servant with just a word. But what we also see here is Jesus' humanity, because when you're amazed, there's a component or an element of being surprised. Now, how do we know that Jesus was amazed? He doesn't say, I'm amazed at the centurion's faith. So how do we know that Jesus was amazed? The same way I know my daughter is amazed when she sees something amazing. Her jaw drops. It was his nonverbal cues. Jesus is surprised. He's amazed. And we see his humanity here. And he's amazed at the faith and the desperation uh, that this centurion would have, even though he never sees him or meets him. One question that I love to ask my skeptical friends is this. If there is one thing that you needed to believe in God, what would it take? What would it be? Almost without fail, you know what the answer is? If you want me to believe in God, the one thing I need is a burning bush experience. If Jesus were to come right now, show himself to me face to face, just like I'm looking at you, then I'll believe in him. But otherwise, I'm not so sure. But here we see a centurion who never even sees Jesus, never meets him face to face, and yet he believes. Just because something is unseen doesn't mean it has to be uncertain. And in fact, Hebrews 11 would argue just the opposite, that faith is the conviction, the certainty of things unseen. Just because something is unseen doesn't mean it has to be uncertain. One of the best examples I know of faith is like fishing. When you go fishing, the fishes are unseen. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. The fisherman is certain that they are there. And how does he know that the fish are there? He feels the fish tugging on the line. And similarly, even though we might not be able to see God, we can still be certain that he is there because we can feel him tugging on our hearts. But the way to feel God tugging on our hearts is if you have the right kind of bait. You know what the bait is? It is desperation, it is humility, and it is surrendering. If you're desperate enough, if you're humble enough, if you're small enough, you can feel him tugging in your heart. So let me close with a story of desperation and humility, which I shared a few months ago. And it's the story of Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's daughter. And she was asked to share during his eulogy one of her most favorable moments with Billy Graham, her father. And the moment that she shared that was her most favorite moment was not actually as a child, but as an adult. And she says, after 21 years of marriage, my marriage ended in divorce. And she says she was devastated. She was floundered. She felt like the rug was pulled out from under her feet and she didn't know what to do. And so her parents encouraged her to maybe start afresh, move to a new city, um, find a new community. And so Ruth moved closer to her older sister, 
and she moved closer to a good local church. The pastor of the local church introduced Ruth to a good-looking man who was also a widower, and they began to date fast and furious. The problem was her kids hated him, but she thought to herself, they're all grown up now. They don't really need a father figure. Besides, they can't tell me what to do. I'm older than them. I'm their mother. Her parents wanted her to slow down as well, just so that they can actually get to know the man a little bit better. But Ruth said, being stubborn, being willful, and being sinful, she chose not to listen to them. And after quickly dating, they got married on New Year's Eve. Within 24 hours, Ruth regretted the decision that she had made, and within five weeks, she fled from her new husband out of fear of him. And she drove to her parents' home, and it was a two-day drive. And she began thinking to herself, what was I going to say to them? This is the second time my marriage has ended in divorce. What was I going to say to my kids? How was I going to explain the situation to them? What were they going to say to me? We told you not to date this man so fast. You're a disgrace to the Billy Graham name. Don't you know who your father is? And so questions began to swirl in her mind as she made this two-day drive to her parents' home. Her parents lived on top of a mountain. And as she drove swirling around this mountain, she was close to the driveway And lo and behold, she sees Dr. Billy Graham, her father, waiting outside on the front porch for his daughter. And as she drove up the long driveway and parked her car, she stepped outside of her car. And her father went immediately to her, hugged her and embraced her, and said, welcome home. No shaming, no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath, no nothing but unconditional love. You know what Ruth said to close her story? She said, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. And similarly, when we come to God, no judgment, no condemnation, No shaming, no guilt, but just unconditional love. Now, is that someone that you would not want to surrender your life to? Or is that someone that you would surrender your life to? Surrendering is one of the hardest things you can do in life. Obedience is actually somewhat easier because obedience is a momentary act Surrendering is a posture, a daily posture where you let go of the bar even though you're anxious, afraid, and worrisome, and you surrender your life to the hands of another. But are you too big? Are you too proud to do so? Well, I want you to know in the same words of Dr. Billy Graham, this invitation is not only extended to me or to Ruth Graham, but this invitation is extended to you as well. But you must surrender. This series is called An Upside Down Life because the way up is the way down. 
The way to win in life is by losing your life. And the way to get a control over your life is ironically by surrendering your life. But will you let go of the bar so that he can catch the full weight of who you are? Let's pray together. Father, when a lot of painful things have happened in your life, it's really hard not to take matters into your own hand and be very, very independent. But teach us that perhaps there is nothing more proud than the sin of independence. Because the fact of the matter is we cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. We can only be saved by another, and that is you. And so we thank you for not only, only being our loving Father, but, but, but by being our loving Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.